0: Such a nerd. <laughs> Such a nerd <laughs> move.
1: Oh, no. I'm the real nerd. I brought notes.
0: No, that's awesome, man. <laughs> Bringing notes is I have
2: notes, too, but they're, I didn't share them with you, so you wouldn't know that I had notes.
0: Oh, that's looks okay. Like trying I was. to get spontaneous reactions from you. Sorry,
1: oh, oh, no. That's... Yeah. I mean, so... Are we uh, recording yet? Yep. Oh, okay.
0: We're recording yet, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. So, basically... Um, I brought some notes on the debate between Graeber and Teal, just like benchmarking the things that were said, mm. not like takes. So, just to keep everyone, it looks like you have. Pages
0: We've got and some pages notes. notes. Yeah, yeah, I watched, uh, I watched the Graeber Teal uh, just earlier today. Okay, so and I'll I had share. some thoughts. So,
1: Gramsci tries to push against that with things like the idea of the organic intellectual. Um, by saying that the intellectual is not a distinct class um, and that it's it's just the idea of intellectual is just something that um, has this like class aura of traditionalism from like the academy yeah. and uh, so Gramsci basically the first person to make the PMC ah. critique the professional managerial And critique. we've all
0: been cursed or blessed with it since. Yeah. Depending so on where you stand on PMC. Share
1: it maybe. Oh. Um, Andy, would you agree with that? With what? Um, So I was saying that Gramsci's idea of the organic intellectual is kind of like the first, one of the first critiques um, on the idea of the professional managerial Mm -hmm. class, basically. Like the idea of the organic intellectual is that intellectuals are not a distinct class from workers. And, you know, he was influenced by Lenin's idea that we need to obliterate the difference between workers and the intellectuals, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm just saying that, you know, like we have Catherine Liu, we have um, Christopher Lash, uh, all of these people that basically talk about the PMC in various different ways. Um, But it seems to start with Gramsci. Um, Anybody wants to comment on that? Uh, Yeah, I
2: definitely thought about that a lot when I was rereading this stuff, especially because I feel like that was the argument I was bringing at you when we first talked about this. Yeah. What
0: was this first engagement that you guys had? Was this on Twitter or was this in real life? We were at a party. We were sharing
1: uh, sharing a whiskey. Uh, uh, We were drinking. We were drinking drinking
2: Fireball. Drinking yeah. a fireball. The real fireball, not the bullshit. And you gave me fake bodega the, fireball. First,
1: the first take from Andy was that we were drinking a real fireball, not the fireball <laughs> that you buy at <laughs> convenience stores. And I agreed with that. He is, yeah. he is and standing
0: on this. An organic platform. fireball. Organic, organic fireball. It's <laughs> actually more of a traditional fireball. Because the ones they sell the bodega are like 20% <laughs> right, alcohol. That's how liquor. they can get away with it. Yeah.
2: And I could have been talking about that all night, yeah. but Matthew steered the, the conversation in a totally different direction, mentioning Peter Thiel and David Graeber, and they had a debate at some point.
1: Did you guys know
0: and about this? debate? how did it get? How did you guys get from um, from Gramsci to to Graber and Thiel?
2: I think I brought up. I noticed that there was like a some sort of leftist event that was that was scheduled for Dime Square, like oh. the, the Dime Square that's like on the map now. So. I know it's cringe to talk about it, but it, it exists
0: <laughs> geographically. Mike, do you think it's cringe to talk about it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I my mean, God. I made a whole career out of <laughs> <about> it. So. <laughs> so are you cringe? <laughs> Maybe. But
3: I mean, you got like, uh, to be like sort of unapologetically. Cringe. So and then it's like not cringe. And then all the other people are cringe because they're so like, you know, hung up on. You pass through cool the <laughs> cringe
0: until you become based. That's exactly how it goes. Yeah, hell yeah. And yeah, so
1: basically there's the there is the, there's this idea that there's this rising kind of like recapturing of Dime Square as leftists and they call it the new guard. And basically like... Who people, says that? Um, just people within that that world say... So the, the true guard are oh like oh basically like the people like Dasha and um, Peter Vac and I mean, Mike can do the... the you want to explain it? Uh, you I, could do a better job. Well, yeah, it.
3: Uh, I guess it's like the... Um, there's like a sort of like micro generation of like younger people that are like dime square like party kids that are like not as uh, outwardly reactionary and they're kind of like oh well the reactionary stuff is kind of like exposed and it's like a bad look now so <coughs> i i feel like so they kind of like talk about like leftist things or um and are kind of like trying to like recode the right that like, war, like Warhol factory kid people scene away from like the uh, reactionary, like, edge lord to like whatever comes after. That being said, like, I don't really know what, like, what that. Like the quote-unquote like new guard like project like means like I wouldn't
0: identify myself with that. When
3: you say these
0: people are of the left, is that like the progressive left or the socialist left or the? I communist would say it's left? very.
1: I would say incredibly ambiguous, and also mm. like I would just say that. Going back to what Andy and I were talking about, I was just bringing up the fact that anytime somebody does something that is explicitly political in any kind of way, even for transgressive reasons, that it invites the opposite. And I, I said that basically the Graeber and Peter Thiel debate was like a more interesting version of this, basically, mm. and that's what gets us to this. Um, yes, exactly. Conversation. So
2: and so, let's uh, maybe now we can have that conversation, then work our way back to the Dime Square stuff. Because I'm sure a ton of our listeners want to turn off the episode before that, <laughs> but some might be interested. Exactly. Um, but basically, you you call you said something about Graeber being uh, an organic intellectual of the left. And I kind of came at you a little bit because of the fireball. I was all fired up. I came at at you with a pretty vulgar understanding of that term, where I basically said, like, well, you know, I like Raber a lot, but he is an academic. And my understanding of organic intellectual was, uh, sadly, it was a little bit closer to the, uh, like, organic as produce understanding of organic, like, you're (laughs) actually from the working class and self-educated or something like that. And my problem with uh, Graeber is that, although I like most of what he has to say, he is an anthropologist, and a lot of who he's talking to are his colleagues. Mm. And I think that really hampers, um, although I think Don of Everything did a great job at reaching this wider audience. Totally,
1: totally.
0: Um, He is a popularizer, right? (laughs) I mean, that's what he does with his books, but he does... He, he was in his life within that academic milieu and that's where he like made, he did all his work and mm-hmm. made his bones. So it's fair to call him an academic whether or not he yeah, tried to popularize totally. or not.
1: He's like a public intellectual though. He's not yeah. like a, he's not a true academic or a traditional academic.
2: I mean, he, he, he makes an effort to not just be an academic, which yeah. I, I so sold like, short on that for sure.
1: Yeah, totally. Because I, I, uh, you know, personally identify with the idea of being like a like a public uh, person who's in academia as somebody that's going to get my bachelor's when I'm like 37, which is hilarious. Oh yeah. And then, (laughs) um, you know, is, you know, and at a really terrible school in a way, um, in my opinion, um, that is really hard for people that are in my position, I think traditionally, um, and still to this day, um, and don't make it easy. Um, and I think the, you know, Graeber talks about the school system here is just horrible. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, it's, it, They created a new debt economy, Mm -hmm. basically, by, uh, you know, by raising it. Um, So with that said, yeah, I don't think that he's, like, the most public intellectual person. I don't consider myself to be a public intellectual, but I'm a, you know, person who identify with his way of making things accessible in the same way that Raymond Chandler, uh, uh, Raymond Williams and these types of people do, as opposed to, like, the Frankfurt School and those types of people. Yeah,
2: and so after I I reread some of this stuff, I realized that you were totally correct, that actually Graber is an organic intellectual of the left um, and Thiel, just like Teal is an organic intellectual of the fascist right. Mm. And so this debate actually, I think, is a very That's good example of sort of what's playing out in the you know avant-garde culture of Manhattan as it still exists, to the extent it still exists. And so maybe today we can talk about like what this organic intellectual term means, like what our position in it, is as writers as podcasters and then maybe we can talk about if the dime square thing matters if it matters it's yeah. what we do matter yeah but uh because we can... the dime
1: square historic moment is so narrow and also like the people that care about it's even more yes. narrow so
2: but i do think the Gramsci is a very good framework for talking about it well, let's fucking do it yeah should we talk a little bit about Gramsci first? Like, try to be really brief with it. Yeah, sure. Uh, who's I'm the, who's I'm the not biggest the Gramsci expert on? Uh, I will Gramsci. say a really good story I love about him is that when he was a kid, uh, yeah. his parents thought he was going to die. Mm. Like, yeah. he had some you know degenerative most, disease. Most Italian kids he, were dying. He grew at up that in time. Sardinia, which is I think especially poor. Yeah, and so instead of getting him a bed because a bed would have been expensive. They just had him sleep in his coffin. Oof. And he just slept in his coffin until he, like, grew out of it at oh age God. eight or something.
0: Uh, yeah, well, might as well get him a bed now.
1: That's insane. He also, um, you know, he went to university as, like, a poor person, basically, and did really well. Because, working, dif- dis- you know, despite what everyone says, working class people do really well in school when they're given the right opportunities, they care way more than anybody that is, you know, wealthier.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, he was a, a part of the Italian Socialist Party when the Bolshevik Revolution happens and the mm-hmm. Third International is founded. He becomes a communist, one of the leaders of the PCI, along with Burdiga.
1: And responding to the Italian Socialist Movement mm-hmm. because he identified more <clears throat> with the Leninists.
2: You know, yada, yada, yada. He's arrested by the fascists when the fascists come to power.
0: Who are also a split from the Socialist Movement.
1: Sure.
2: <laughs>
0: Yes. One way of looking at it, oh, <laughs> like the, yeah.
1: the true red, true red brown alliance.
0: Well, you have, I mean, famously Mussolini was on the left wing of the Italian Socialist Party previous to the First mm-hmm. World War, totally. and the the combination of the First World War, this inter imperialist war, and the Revolution of nineteen seventeen causes a what appears at first to be like a two way split between socialists and like the Zimmerwald left right. or the communists as as they break away to be. It also helps birth fascism too. So Mussolini is like. Uh, had been a fellow traveler of, like, the Gramsciites. Mm -hmm. I
1: I think one of the important things about this, too, is to keep in mind that during the turn of the century, the part of what gave rise to the fascist movement is not just, political like, political difference, like these new political differences with socialism, but also this elitism uh, around traditional intellectual beliefs that a certain cast of people basically were meant to rule... And you know we do see this in left movements as well. We do see that you know the the idea of the vanguard often misrepresented in certain ways, but certain people do take that to mean that a certain set of people are meant to rule. Um, and obviously, you know Mussolini believed that to be um, you know a very specific type of rule as well. And so Gramsci would not agree with him in terms of like thinking that this is good for workers, right?
0: Yeah, no. Mussolini is a revisionist. <laughs> he basically like with the failure, as he sees it, of the class struggle in Italy, he sees the state as the as the means to like effectuate a social revolution, and it's one that's based on iron discipline instead of like. Class. You know, in a way, they're
2: sort of responding to the same question, which is that Italy was right. incredibly underdeveloped yeah. uh, compared to the rest of Europe, and. Mussolini's answer is that I was like, "Well, we have to become more imperialist. Like, we, we need are, to make a huge economic jump yeah. forward with the power
0: of the state." Um, as and he's like, "That's
1: more based." He's right. like,
0: "We are a proletarian nation uh, fighting right. against the big capitalist nations." And I think and he didn't see those in terms of like we're going to build proletarian socialism. He's like, "We are an oppressed country as a country."
2: And I think these ideas from Gramsci. Uh, he, he develops these understanding that the kind of orthodox Marxist or Leninist formulation does involve, is like based in the industrial north where most of the actions happening for the PCI. And Gramsci is thinking about how the entire country can get involved in this struggle, like why would these ideas be relevant to the peasantry? Mm. And Lenin thinks about this as well, but um, maybe it's a good time to like talk about sort of the the advancement of this, like what this idea sort of differs from Marx or something. I think you right,
1: have totally some ideas yeah. from
0: that. Oh, you got a lot of notes on Gramsci <laughs> yeah. right yeah. here. This is gonna be good.
1: Um, well, um, sorry to disappoint you. There's <laughs> you're like it's pollution. not gonna be good. No, it's not. <laughs> I trust um, it'll be great. No, I mean, so I mean, the famous quote from Marx, of course, is that, uh, you know, this the mode of production of material life conditions the general process of social, political, and intellectual life. Um, it's not the consciousness of men that determines their existence, but their social existence that determines their consciousness. So the totality of like how we live socially is predetermined by our economic life. And um, so basically, we kind of talked about this earlier, but basically, like at you know when when the turn of the century happens, people like Gramsci, you know, people like Arthur Sarr, you know, the Frankfurt School. These people say, well, we see that. Uh, they were able to actually win by their ideas. You know, their ideas w- became culturally substantiated in a way um, that proves that not all political life is determined by economic life.
0: Mm. So this is uh, trying to come to terms with the fact that the revolution fails pretty everywhere except for Russia. So wh- how is it that the working class was bought out or sold out it is, and they uh, turned towards a culturalist argument?
1: Yeah, totally. So basically, I mean, after, you know, I, I think the argument basically is not necessarily that it fails in Russia or... Um, I don't know if people would agree that at this time that it failed in Russia and other places, but that it didn't spread to the entire world mm. as they would have assumed, right? And so the culturalist argument, which, you know, now we see permeations of this the effect argument, like getting people on board through, like, pop culture and these different things, culture jamming, all of that, and what I consider to be in Dimes Square, cancel culture jamming, basically, <laughs> like, the opposite of that. Um, like, these things, obviously, um, you know, have become the predominant way of thinking. Like, we see, um, you know, with, with people, like, uh, you know, we look at, like, the rise of, you know, neoliberalism because of the Mount pelerin in school. You guys are familiar with mm-hmm. this, I'm guessing. Yeah, And, like, through these technocratic institutional um, grabbing techniques, not only has culture been um, kind of like the means and ways that, that the political thought has been taken over, but also um, that institutional thinking, you know, and that's the, you know, that's where I, I do think that uh, Teal believes in institutional thinking. He believes in, you know, innovation through this tie with, you know, financialization, um the rentier class of the financial class as well that often is missed you know in talking about uh you know silicon valley they're all it's all based on um you know uh, evaporating centuries of value produced by workers
2: so i think the organic intellectual part of this comes in when we're thinking about how it is that the classes the popular classes side with one position or another, whether right. they side with the dominant order, the capitalist right. state, or the fascists when they come to power, or the communist workers when they come to power. How, how does that consent manufactured? Or like, uh, I think the, the Leninist formulation was, we'll try to make, the, get the peasants on our side, but if they don't, mm-hmm. we'll just have to crush them. Right. And so I think Gramsci's trying to think like, well, well, if this happened in Italy, how do we get people on our side? And the answer is, First of all, expands the definition of intellectual to not just mean professors. Oh, yeah, Sorry, um, but also yeah. also specialists. Well, you know, he he believes that everybody can be an intellectual or exactly. even is an intellectual. Yes. Um, but there's a traditional intellectual, which is someone who's de class A, who believes you know th- these are like the the church. Yeah, um, totally the ecclesiastic uh, you know, or uh, or specialists. You know, people who are know how to scientific mechanics. Memory. Yeah, yeah um, philosophers bureaucrats, and then the organic intellectuals have allegiance to one class order or the other, whether it be the dominant order or an emergent order. So mm-hmm. we can talk about like neoliberal organic intellectuals. We can talk about fascists, organic intellectuals. Right. And then what I'm most curious about, because I think it's pretty clear who those are, but who are the organic intellectuals of socialism or communism today? Mm. Um, That's a good question. And it's hard to, for me, it's a hard question because... I don't know what that emerging order is. Mm. In his time, it was very clear. It's the, the third international. Mm. He knows it was easy for him to talk about this emerging social order, even from prison. Uh, but we don't really have that so much.
0: I think this, the, the whole conversation that Gramsci is involved in, and even like people like Althusser and the Frankfurt School, it's a very different conversation today because you have the famous going back to the german spd of the 19th century the idea of the merger thesis that there's like the intellectuals you know on the one hand and then there's the workers movement and the party is the merger of those two different things right. trying to figure out the like why it is that marxist theory exists on the one hand as this like analysis and method for understanding the world that has a particular political purpose, which is overcoming capitalism, why that is embedded in this one group of thinkers on the one hand, and then there's like the mass of the working class on the other, and what is the relationship between those two things that was a different question to ask in the 19th and like early 20th century even up to althusser's time cuz althusser is a member of the french communist party mm-hmm. gramsci's a member of the communist party of italy nowadays when you're talking about it, there is no third international there's no like organized left there's just like democrats and like their their representatives around the whole world so maybe like Maybe this is a maybe the the question itself needs to be updated for the time that we're in right now when yeah. there is no PCI, right? What does Gramsci look like if there is no communist party?
1: Right. I can offer part of that, but somebody else can jump into it before.
3: Probably just like a hodgepodge of like various like organic intellectuals for all, I mean, and that just sort of have some sort of fidelity to the real movement as as it, like, emerges, which, like, it does in various, like, instances, but we're also in a time where, like, there's no... We sort of... Yeah, there's no party to, like, hold it together. Right. And so it's... Um, I feel like... Uh, in a sense, like, us right here, we are sort of, like, functioning as, like, organic intellectuals, but I feel like we're not... Th- that, like... We already are organic intellectuals of our like social class hmm. already, but like whether or not we're sort of like living up to like being like true like leftist right. intellectuals, it, like that's a different thing, right? And totally. I think that that kind of is like in as much as we're sort of like succeeding in well, either being class traders if we're like the bourgeoisie, like bourgeois sort of bourgeois intellectuals or actually sort of like representing like a proletarian, like organic intellectual, you know, depending on like who,
0: who is the person. It it gets complicated because the organized left, especially in America, talking about the United States, but broadly like in the West, as the high tide of the sixties and seventies rushes out and people are left with the, the dull reaction of neoliberalism and its political and its economic form um, the left kind of to the extent that an intellectual layer existed within say the Marxist left it liquidates itself into the university so the university right. even in the since the 60s and 70s um, this sort of like dry academic theoretical Marxist apparatus that exists you know when Althusser is writing or even like the Frankfurt school too that um, represents a different period because now it's like the left intellectuals liquidated themselves into the university but now the university in a in this country and in the west is liquidating itself yeah so like whereas a certain percentage of organic intellectuals if you want to call that, would have been sucked up into the academic sphere to get like tenure track jobs and like teach some sort of dry, like non practical Marxism to people. Now that as like a a safety valve doesn't exist anymore. Right. So that that opens the question now of like if you were of that particular type fifty years ago you were doing one thing, but what are you doing now? Are you just like Mm -hmm. podcasting or like handing out leaflets or going down to the latest rally or cop city or whatever.
3: I think that like the way that the like contemporary writer, for instance, as like qua intellectual get, is like co-opted by like the bourgeoisie <laughs> essentially is sort of like we're now in like the paradigm of like the PR person, like the PR person is like, that is the way for the writer to sell out. like, and there are other like types of like, you know, there are other ways in other like professions that like you can sell out and do, but I mean I'm I'm a writer and so that's sort of like the thing that I feel like people of like that similar like set of skills and backgrounds like that's that's like the only way you can really sell out now because uh like there's no there's no fucking future for journalism and right. oh, stuff that's like for that sure, or, yeah. and I mean yeah, we already talked about academia academia
1: like every yeah because it seems that like every aspect of um, educational life has been equi- uh, liquidated basically and you know as Graeber says in this debate it's been turned into new forms of debt pinage um, and I mean <clears throat> you know when the you know when when the Berlin Wall fell and people were saying that the end of the world will happen before the end of capitalism you know that's like the left took on like a whole new type of defeatism right And I think that that hit the institutions of leftism the hardest. You know, I think, you know, like look at labor unions where we're at the low edge density of labor unions. I think uh, Chris Smalls was saying it's between, like below 9% now, I believe. Um, And it's just shrinking, you know, as him and Starbucks, UPS, UPS and, you know, all of these organizations are trying to get um, recognized, you know. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, the, the idea that we, you know, we don't want to accept that institutional players are, you know, of the left at the same time, um, when the left wants to build power, you know, in these types of ideas, it creates this really interesting tension, right? Because thinking about Peter Thiel and what he's doing, like, you know, he, he funded podcasts, right? Mm. That was his cultural hegemonic project, but
2: is that true? Does, did, I, I know that there's like a little bit of money going around, but does it seem significant from what you understand?
1: Well, I think I think the thing to like to put this in perspective, like what hegemony t- traditionally is, like think about things like um, like Afghanistan. Like, did the United States like want to financially benefit from that? Like there wasn't, like, a lot of resources there. We no. just wanted to, like, fend off Russia in a, in a hegemonic sense, right? So, like, yeah, I think that he was giving out money, and I, and I think the thing that most people don't realize is he's not just giving money to these, like, low cultural projects. Um, he's also giving money to these high cultural projects, and he's been doing this for a long time, you know, and these are more in line with his, like, venture funds and these types of... Um, you know, institutional thinking practices. Um, you know, he's a teacher at Stanford. And, you know, he's he's really invested in these things like effective altruism, you know, in these types yeah. of projects.
0: What uh, is effective altruism? What That was that Sam uh, Phillips Fine. What was that guy name? Guy's Sam Bakeman. Sam Bakeman. I feel I like didn't Mike, even, would was be, even close, Mike
1: could but. probably give the best definition here.
3: Um, yeah. The, if, uh, so it's basically like... Uh, sort of a bunch of analytic philosophers uh, that hang out with extremely rich people uh, sort of comforting the rich people that they are not total like evil parasites Mm. and that they actually can do like, like they can be ethical with their, like their class position. Yeah. And And it's implicit that the more money
2: they get and the more ethical they are, the better they'll do. I mean, like, h- they uh, are left effective altruists too. Oh, some, there's a lot. Yeah. Some of them yeah. listen to the show. Shout out. Oh, shout out to you guys. But you I, guys t- I'm l- sorry. To me, it just, it just sounds like neoliberal. It's like progressive
0: really. neoliberal Calvinism. It's like predestination. <laughs> You've been brought on this earth by our good Lord capital to make a lot of money and then be ethical. Like the Yimby's are another example of this. Mm. Yeah. Like, the
1: idea is that like traditionally people worked in like nonprofits and if you want to change the world by working in a nonprofit when you're paid like $25,000 or $30,000 a year um, where you have little to no power in that institution then there's no point instead you should work in silicon valley as like some kind of you know, working in some kind of venture fund as some kind of like technologist and you should raise as much money as possible for causes that you think are worthy. Um and so, you know, it's a very rationalist thinking. Mm. It, you know, they you know, it's just like Peter Thiel, like he doesn't like when Graeber says to him in that debate, like, Yeah, like you I mean Teal's argument here, and this is the A argument as too, is basically in Silicon Valley you don't have to convince as many people. Mm-hmm. If you want a social revolution, you have to convince a lot more people. In Silicon Valley, you just have to convince twelve people on a board. Mm.
0: You know? And they're probably on Molly, and you're all probably rubbing <laughs> each other's heads at this. And
1: they're time. all rich. It's, yeah,
0: it's interesting because like it reminds me of um, the 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 was it the Gospel of Wealth or the. Well, yeah. prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel or, yeah, I know but, what you're talking about. But like um, the, the shit that Carne- Carnegie was up to, right? Like Carnegie right. makes all this money. It's like a working class kid from Scotland done good, and he becomes like one of the richest men in history up until that moment. But when he's giving away, he's doing all his charitable works. He's building like the library that's literally up the street. It's like a Carnegie Library. He's still going
2: to his wonderful libraries, and they're the best ones.
0: Yeah, they're the greatest ones. They're built in the 1890s, and they're like real physical institutions, and they're public. Then their purpose is like fully social, right? It's like raising people's literacy, and it's like crafting good citizens and like smart workers or whatever but then by the time we get down like a hundred and something years later to today all of this effective altruism is like you were saying Mike it's it's like PR like the rich aren't even like giving like like building things per se anymore like for the working class it's more like about convincing people right. yeah. of like like the, the correct NGO to bring the right kind of like meritocratic ideas to young people or something yeah it's like everything seems to have devolved down into that even like the imagination of the left is like how do we get better persuasion techniques you know how do we been burgess yeah, how do we give them an argument, right? And its I'm not saying that, like, it's its right or wrong, but I think it's interesting, like, compared to, like, Gramsci's time or Althusser's time, how much of everything now is, like, an intellectual pursuit, you know? Right.
3: Well, I think that the, like, crucial thing with the, like, effect of altruism uh, basically, like, boils down to it's, like, totally indifferent to, like, class struggle. Like, it basically, like, tries to, like... What is class? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> that's what it is. Class
0: so. are the people that click. Uh, working <laughs> class are those who click. Right. And the ruling class are those who provide content to be clicked on. <laughs> and this is the class structure in this world, right?
3: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: We're all just proles, you know, scrolling through our, our TLs.
2: But if if this is the case, that so much of this politicization is happening online, which I'm not convinced of, but...
1: What do you mean it's mostly happening online?
2: You know, if, like, what people are clicking on, what people are, you know, with their attention drawn to. Platforms. And, uh, you know, like what Joshua Citarella sort of studies with, like, these pipelines. If there's something to that, I think that we do have a role to play um, in that politicization. And I think, you know, for for me, uh, me and Sean, like, we enter into this, uh, Patreon podcast space in the Patreon
1: class, tw- mm-hmm.
2: 2017. That part of the ruling um, class, yeah. which was the dirtbag left. You know, we yeah. are part of this. We are part of this kind of, you know, in retrospect, a very coherent left project to sort of move the Overton window left, like using the opportunity of the like specter of a Bernie versus Trump yeah. election to uh, try to bring people more to our perspectives. And out of that dirtbag left, which was you know, at least a, at least we could say effective as a cultural phenomenon, uh, comes this kind of reaction that we were talking about before, this right the left thing produces a right thing. And that was Red Scare and Sam Hyde and intellectual dark web, this sort of like right organic intellectual milieu that seems really intent on doing the exact same thing, like, but just leading, like red pilling people.
1: Right. I mean, Sam Hyde, I feel like is more distinct. I feel like, Red Scare is a really good example of what you know. I think a lot of people think of them as being right wing, but I think also it's. I think in some ways they're they're a really good example of people who view themselves as being like apolitical and anti political, and that and that's why I say they're an, they're kind of like cancel culture jamming because like original culture jamming, which. I don't know why people attribute this to people like brain and these, I don't understand. Oh, that. it
0: was Ad Busters Magazine and that column. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, Naomi you. Klein, I remember it well. Thank I you. I came up with that shit. I had Ad Busters Magazine subscription, man.
1: Yeah, exactly. And cancel culture jamming is basically taking, you know, the symbols of cancel culture and using those against people. And that's what Dime Square is basically. You know, they're reappropriating all of these like ideas and showing the contradictions of leftism and extreme types of hyper-politics, as Anton Yeager calls it. Mm. Um, you know, when people are interpolated to be extremely political in every aspect of their life, all of a sudden some people become really uncomfortable with this. And it's probably the people that are not, you know, uh, their, their privilege is being challenged in some regard, you know. And so, like, the most productive thing they can do with their life is to challenge um you know whatever power inversion that is happening at that political
3: moment I feel like I have a a little slightly different way of articulating like the definition of dime square like I think that I would like when it gets down to it it's basically like there it basically is what it's a milieu of like rich kid um like Intellectual, not intellectuals, uh, sort of like art, more like artists, intellectuals um, that are essentially they just like totally embody like the like bourgeois class consciousness in a way that's like not new at all. It's like uh, but what is new or at least like seems new is that it's kind of in this moment at which these like like fascist far right. Cultural signifiers are like tied up in it, so it's basically like the the like leisurely class, bourgeoisie, like artsy kids mm. in this like fascist era, mm. and uh, so it's like a, a pure reflection of their their class interests that in that they are like for the most part like white or like adjacent <laughs> and like like the um like rich and they are like reflecting their interests of like they basically like want the like cultural capital that is like in like as a re- reaction to this like social social justice like um basically like social justice signifiers in the culture they're threatened by that. Mm-hmm. And then there's this like they like identify with like reactionary fascists. It's a back
0: know. it's a backlash so. to uh, like uh, the last fifteen, twenty years of progressivism and right. then it's also especially- a backlash to,
2: I think, leftists becoming kind of cool for a moment. Mm. Whereas yeah. Trump was cool amongst alt right people who are not cool. Mm. So there had to be sort of a cultural pull for like downtown artsy people to be right wing because that's sort of materially who they are meant to be and want mm-hmm. to be without being totally cringe
0: like a griper. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right. Is is that to that sort of do it in like a disaffected, cool, like yeah, Gen X sort of way.
1: Yeah. I think it, yeah. I think that it's like disaffected, like a Gen X kind of way for sure. Yeah,
3: And uh, I still, like, I, um, you know, uh, everyone's always sort of talking about how like, oh, well, like, why should we care about it? Or like, nope, like, this is so, such like a micro, like such a niche community or whatever. But I actually feel like
1: people said that about the alt right though too,
3: yeah, yeah. I'm not but
1: saying they're the same. I'm just saying that any anytime any kind of like new political group comes up, people are like, "Well, why should we pay attention to them because they're so small? I'm just saying it's not a unique critique,
3: right, right, yeah, but i i I where I'm going with this is like I think it's like super interesting, or it's like you know like what what could be like fucking weirder than that, you know, all these like like it just kind of it's I, just like it's pure reflection of the fucking garbage world where I, I, <laughs> you know, I, right? I, I think that's true that's yeah.
0: the interesting way to look at it I think cause the only times I've encountered Dime Square stuff is through like the various uh, PR driven like uh, press release stenographer right, type true. articles in like New York Magazine or right. Uh, whatever passes for like cultural press nowadays in this country. It seems like very much an astroturfed attempt to like make people care about. But I think that there is a reason because I th- I feel like, and I, maybe this is you guys' theory through Gramsci of what the organic intellectual it is. but like there are certain people who like pick up on a particular zeitgeist. Like, I'm not saying these are the smartest, these are like the brightest bulbs in the fucking room, but like some people are particularly sensitive to, like, uh, like the contradictions and the conflicts of a particular moment. So these, like, artsy, well-educated, rich kids are sitting at the, kind of the, the center of the media universe of, like, of uh, the United States and, like, yeah. the rest of the West. And uh, an art scene, which is, like, really, you know, still strong here in New York City. So they have this voice, and they're picking up on all these different, various different cultural factors happening. And so they represent, like the bleeding edge of like what right thought could be at this particular moment, because they're like particularly attuned in a cultural sense to all of the, the, the changes and struggles happening.
1: I think sometimes though, I think, I think left, I think people from the left have a really hard time um, identifying people that um, don't fit into their like political um, like framework sometimes. And I think like, you know, just because I, you know, I know people in Dime Square, I've, I feel like, like, I, I do think that a lot of people do fit in with, like, what Mike's saying, um, but I, I do think that a lot of, like, at least in the podcast space, it's all driven by kind of whatever is going to bring, you know, it's like, it's this, like, cohesion between Twitter, Reddit, podcast apps, and what the platform prioritizes, which is like sensationalism. Mm. So like if you are located within a left space and you know that something is going to trigger other people, um, you know, this is called rage baiting. This is like a technique that people use. You use that to generate outrage and you can only get a certain outrage if people think that you're originally, you know, a solar station, <coughs> sorry, a sailor socialist or whatever. Mm. Yeah. Right. And like, and so like I, I don't think I don't think there's coherence to it. I don't think that these people are aware uh, and I think that this and the reason people identify with it is because a lot of people don't have a coherent coherent political ideology because we're all being faced with all of these different political opinions all the time. and as much as like, you know, political theorists are constantly telling us that we're all in our bubbles. I think also that like I experience my own types of political like incoherency and confusion and some, you know, often I feel like what I think and what politics I do doesn't matter, you know? Um, And I think that when you feel that way, you don't feel a part of the left sometimes. And there's that like kind of alienation of like having these expectations that you're supposed to be a good leftist, you know?
0: Um, It's a reaction to like the failures, right, of of the left in the last four or five years. It's pretty easy to make fun of a movement like the Bernie movement that falls flat on its face, not once but twice. Well, like to branch off of what I was saying before to maybe complete the thought is I'm not giving these people credit for being good, like taking a, a good social temperature. I guess they're like... They're, they're seeing the collapse of this particular sort of progressive edifice and, and movement. Totally. And they're able to point out the negation of that. Like, what's the negative of this uh, social justice stuff? It's like, edge lordy, I don't give a shit about, you know, right. talking, like saying the N-word or whatever it is they do. Um, and how this how this actually ties into the real world is... The Republican Party, like the far right of the Republican Party, is split right now between people who are white nationalists. Uh, These are like the newer sort of Nietzschean, sort of like Trumpian types on the one hand, and then there's like the classic libertarian types who are like civic nationalists. And there's like these warring factions within the Republican Party. It's not like an accident that what these people of politics ends up becoming in the end is some subsidiary of like what the dominant Right-wing politics is in this country, but they're in a unique position because of their funding, because of their platform, and because of the of people they you know they can meet because they're rich and travel all over the place and whatever. They're in a unique position to pick up on that stuff and actually push it forward. Right. You know, standing people like Nick Fuentes or like talking about uh, race, race and IQ, or like crime statistics or whatever.
1: And well, and just quickly, and also just just as somebody in in the real world that's like part of the political world, like doing political events that I won't aim. But um, the right wing has money and they will come after you if you're on the left and they do want to fund things that you're doing and they they will seek you out. And um, the reason that Red Scare does an event with Roger Stone and with Alex Jones and all of these things is because there's like a certain acceptance of grifting Mm. on the right. They want you. They will accept you. Whereas the left, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but the left is like more critical upon, you know, uh, letting new people in, in my experience. Um, You know, it's very hard to like go on a left podcast in general. You guys are especially more organic intellectual types, but like there's more of a technocratic kind of, vibe that i experience on the left where it's harder to get into new left circles and it's a very slow but right wing the right wing's like very accepting of all types of people in my experience mm-hmm. what? well they
3: like they're they, they like allow like mediocrity to like <laughs> faster along oh, more there's some of that on the left too well yeah, yeah <laughs> but i mean i think that they allow they they're like friendlier to total mediocrity mm. like um i mean i feel like there's some like, what the, like, the Peter Thiel and I, like, Thiel is kind of like a metonym for just like right wing dark money, like, Mm. In general, or like, there's a lot more sources than just like Teal himself, and yeah, there's a like lot course. more like actors. But like, everyone's talking about Teal. Teal, you know, he's he's like the big name. He assassinated his lover, like he like is a fucking allegedly. Like he's a blood. No, drinker. he. Oh my god, he totally. <laughs> oh,
0: <laughs> but no. oh, we're gonna get the, dirt. the editorial Are we, line. <laughs> of should, oh. should we be going behind the paywall for that? one, well, we'll, we'll touch on that later. Yeah,
3: <laughs> no, I don't have any like crazy scoop, but it's like oh it my a boyfriend god. of his was found dead under mysterious circumstances. Mm. I don't think um, oh, yeah. anyone really. Totally knows. assassinated. <laughs> yeah, we but well. like, what? What? So. I think that the what, or one of
1: his enemies assassinated him because that's literally the world he's in. You know,
3: I mean, Teal is like a CIA contractor. He's mm-hmm. he he knows bad people. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, but like, what? What the like billionaire oligarchs see in these like rich kid, like cool kid, idiot, like beautiful people is like. These people to sort of, like, run cover for when they, like, overthrow the Constitution in 1789 yep. and have their, like, billionaire council, like, the, their junta, like, do everything. And, um like, they just need these people who are, like, plausibly intellectuals in this time in which, like, the role of the intellectual is, like, totally collapsed mm. and is, like, totally discredited to basically be, like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. And they don't even need to do it very well they have to just sort of, like, like cause enough, like, doubt and stuff. Right. And they kind of have to, like, they basically just have to, like, like, dazzle and confuse uh, the enemies. And they, which I, yeah, that's Essentially. No, no, totally.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, going back to cultural hegemony, basically, the idea is that you have to naturalize these political categories so that people don't see them. So when people say, uh, what does it mean to take money from Peter Thiel to do a film festival or to do this thing? It doesn't really mean anything. Like, the people that took his money for the MPCC Fest were, like, um, you know, we're black people taking some rich white guy's money and we're not doing anything for him. You know, there's, like, there is an element of... um, of non-meaning, you know, in that Mm. there's like, there's like kind of like something, but there is also this element of like that money is still, in my opinion, upstream from culture. Um, Economy, you know, still is upstream from culture to a certain extent. So I do extreme, I do agree with Marx to a certain extent. Um, And I do believe that, you know, there's certain, for instance, in New York, there are certain spaces in New York where you can go and who funds these spaces, Mm. Um, and you know a lot of times in New York it's like bars and it's you know it doesn't matter but there are spaces that are funded by right-wing people Um, and because property still is a thing that requires lots of money you know that's like one of the many things media is another one of these things to get a PR agency to support you um, you have to have money Um, and PR is incredibly influential and so I know we really focus on the podcast space but once again he has a dual approach he influences people in high culture, like Palladium Magazine, for instance, you know. um, These, Palladium Magazine is targeting people that are, have institutional thinking that are going to work at a lot of these influential uh, world international organizations, you know, that will be making you very close to policy levers. And then, you know, the other thing is the, you know, the culture regime of podcasting and these types of things. And so, I mean, as much as like the left... You know, we're, we're trying to define this idea about like, what's the real left and that kind of thing. I think sometimes um, just being able to like point these things out and how they're operating is like really helpful for people because a lot of people don't think that there's any meaning in talking about where Peter Thiel's money is going and how it's influencing people. But I do think that Peter Thiel does want to build an island. You know, he does want to fund things like Praxis where, you know, there's three classes there. There's the peasant class, there's the merchant class, and the Brahmin class. Oh, we missed no. that. We, were,
2: we, we read some of the Praxis's weird blog posts on the show. Yeah, we I, did. I missed the class oh,
0: part of it. If that's the that's if sec- those that, are the that, options, you know, I want to be a Brahmin. This,
2: this is behind that's the... Pe- Time me up, man. No, this There's is- secretly going to be peasants in Praxis City?
0: There has to be peasants. Who the fuck is going to clean no, the toilets? No, <laughs> So this
1: is just so you know. This is insider information. Okay. All right. Uh, there's going to be a full PR campaign against me after I talk about Hell this, probably. Yeah. So put this behind. Bring it on, trolls. Patreon. Uh, this is like Mike Crump style reporting. Hell
3: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly surprising, though.
0: <laughs> reveal the reveal the teal bucks recipients. Go ahead, do it.
3: Oh, there's a lot. That, well, but there's. I mean, there's like the the people. The people who are like the true like teal bucks recipients that are like handling like the the dirty money they they're obvious like they you like talk to them and they're like oh yeah like i'm opening up this new spot in dime square like it's hosting all the uh near reactionary poetry readings like come on through and listen to some racist poems (laughs) there's a space
1: like that in new york (laughs) <laughs> There's like ten. Oh, Wait, There's what are so the? What are this? I've never then, heard of this. Oh, Can you man. tell me?
3: Uh, we'll g- I'm going to get into this it. in it's a second. Not my scene. And man. then um, you got like. I'm a Brahmin. I don't <laughs> go down for that shit. <laughs> oh, these these are these are these are Brahmins. These are these okay. are some real dark elves. <laughs> <laughs> this own. is
1: the merchant class.
3: Okay. They're, they uh, they like see themselves as like uh, like aristocrats or. Yeah,
0: you know, so Yo, I mean, I've seen what Curtis Yarvin, Menchus Moldbug looks like in real life. That motherfucker's not a... He looks
1: about
2: as, you know, about how he writes.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very he, puny he, intellectual. He, lo- he looks, yeah. he, he looks
1: he, like he reads fantasy novels, but well,
0: then... Why like, is it always the motherfuckers who weigh like 95 pounds and have wait, greasy long hair that it, think that they're going to be is the really aristocrats? No, he's
3: not like super skinny. He's just like a, like... He's just like a geek, like a pure. Yeah, exactly. Like tech He's geek. like the
1: guy that wrote like uh, the, uh, what's the Game of Thrones dude that was like obsessed with Machiavelli. What's that guy's name?
0: J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Yeah,
1: no, 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 no. Uh, no, no. no.
0: What, <laughs> uh, close. Close, the, close, L L.L. Martin, L.L.B. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, his close enough. Like, but,
1: like, yeah, that guy. No was offense obsessed. to
0: our listeners who like fantasy. I'm sure there's a lot of. No, you. I like it too. I <laughs> the, just, yeah, yeah. The no,
1: no, I'm just pointing out because he, like, the guy who wrote Game of Thrones was like obsessed
0: with Machiavelli. Okay. Well, these motherfuckers are all obsessed with Nietzsche. And you know? like, not want to bring back like warrior culture. They consider themselves yeah. to be like the the bearers of like. I like the, the gay Teutonic. parts of Nietzsche personally. Well, they're like the worst. <laughs> these people do too, Nietzsche but they're homophobes. <laughs> but they're also gay. <laughs> yeah, they're also gay and Secretly. homophobes. That's like the most based position for them. But let me
2: be. ask you, I think for me the big divider between this kind of like pseudo declassé, apolitical A right-wing thing and the left-wing thing which tends to be like I think more honest or try, strives
0: to be more honest. Certainly we don't allow or we pretend not to allow the sort of opportunism that uh-huh. Mike was talking about with like just taking the money dude just yeah. here to have a good time like not that you anyone's can't even, offering us the money no I mean is.
3: yeah there's like a ton of like left opportunists but like they sort of just like operate differently they like operate in like different like in like a cloud sharky
0: like cancelly way there's I
3: mean like the, well
1: there's those and then like there's the, like, the the, like the institutional
3: thinking people there's like the I think a good maybe Van maybe Jones. a good example of like the opportunistic thing is like the the like like, formal leaders of, like, Black Lives Matter yeah. the organization versus, like, the real movement, uh-huh, of like, right, the George right. Floyd movement. I mean, they couldn't oh. be, like, more different. Or just, you know.
2: in general, like, the NGO world yeah, who has, like, very leftist-sounding missions or academics who, on paper, like, write very leftist papers about the Zapatistas or something. But when it comes down to it, these people are against the real movement. Yeah. yeah. Wait, so you
1: guys are against BLM mansions? Is this an official <laughs> stance of the Antifada podcast? You
2: know, I've never talk to those people but it does seem like they're not sending those money to the organizers on the grounds they certainly didn't so I'm get, against that for they sure.
0: didn't get celebrated when that got found out like if right. this was happening with like the Teal Bucks people they'd be like fucking cool I got a mansion right, from a right. billionaire but even in like what's left of the left you can't be like oh that's so cool they got a mansion out of BLM
2: but yeah. what I wanted where I was going with that is I think there's like a very clear divider on like who's on what side and that is for, well for one like who was in the streets for the George Floyd uprising? Who tried to push that forward in some way? Or at least who tried to think through it in a way that wasn't just purely reactionary? And then two, who's on the side of uh, the workers today and the strikes? Like, I don't see any of these right, right-wing right people supporting I Chris Malls and Steve Donsinger. You know, and th- their politics might not be like totally our politics. Right. But, I, you know, I see what these people are doing, what their agenda is, and I support it. And I think the entire kind of organic intellectual left is supporting that stuff, is supporting the strike wave, even if we have some ideas of the limitations of these things. Mm. And the right will just never do that. Like Tucker Carlson will have Chris Smalls on the show, they'll or Mar- Marco Rubio will support the uh, Amazon unionization. Yeah, like but it's of, as a yeah. way... But it's not a genuine thing. It's like we're it, against the woke corporation it's, or something like that.
0: It's genuine in that it comes from <clears throat> like a culturalist position. So like in the the right populist mind, the people that write on, from the right on Compact Magazine or Mark Rubio or w- all these ghouls, they see themselves defending like the worker not as worker but like as like the homeowner or the worker as like the guy who has to commute in his f150 against what what these people see as like the right. non working class which are like people who type on laptops for work or let's be honest black and brown people right, right. so they're defending a very particular lifestyleist and culturalist um, conception and reality for a lot of workers in this country but that's why they'll never go and like do strike support I mean, or even say they're in because they're in favor of like not the economic part of yeah. class but the cultural aspect yeah
3: I'm, i wonder Yeah, like, they have just, like, absolutely nothing to do whatsoever with any of this, like, revolutionary politics. You know, it's, like, it's just, um, I feel like only, like, the dumbest people fall for it. Or, I mean, I feel like, I guess there was maybe a period in which um, for me to even have been, like, uh, drawn into the appeal of, like, say, like, Dime Square. Because... I feel like that's kind of a big part of my project is to kind of like uh, be like, oh, well, there's something kind of like seductive and interesting and like mm-hmm. edgy about this. But it always like disappoints. It's like it's fucking stupid. It like doesn't it's like it doesn't like deliver on the mayhem because like that it promises because it's just like uh, it gets down to just being like a bunch of really like insecure, like white mediocrities that like can't take any criticism or like any sort of they
0: missed the fucking mayhem that I worked in a restaurant across from like on the map now where it says Dime Square on Google Maps I worked down there like 2002 to 2007 when the financial crisis happened and the Lower East Side and Chinatown back then was kind of mayhem like there was fucking hijinks going on all the time there was like all sorts of uh, organic revelry or whatever I feel like these people are trying to like in their own way, like, live the Vice magazine era, like, the high time, the high point of uh, the Vice magazine era. Oh, the first wave, yeah. Yeah, when the whole, like, when the political economy and, like, the whole, like, cultural sphere that produced that is no longer reproducible anymore. People are too nihilistic and too cynical now to even get into the nihilism and cynicism of, like, Vice magazine circa 2002. Yeah. I feel like there's...
2: Or the Italian futurists who were, you know, sided with the fascists and like would go into the factories screaming their fascist poetry uh, that, you know, constituted the uh, avant-garde in Italy, just like Mm. the Russian futurists were the avant-garde in the Soviet Union. And that's what I really like about your essays, Mike, is you're like, look, I'm a communist. I have some appreciation for what fascist art was.
3: And you guys are not doing that well. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. Yeah. um, yeah, there's like, are the the futurists that we have now
0: is like the Praxis Kitsch, uh, like it's it's technocratic <laughs> and boring and shitty. It's like just some dumb like plan. Yeah. It's like planning, like urban planning.
3: The may- the mayhem that we have now out of it is basically like if if you're like a communist that like shows up to these spaces and then just like tells tell tells them what you see and then they just fucking like break down and that's like <laughs> and they start. That's that's that's, and that's that's the excitement and that's <laughs> that's I, kind of like actually what
0: I well, get. Well the original of. fascism comes out of like a million fucking Italians like dying in grenade and bayonet attacks you know, like in the north of right. Italy. It comes from like a shell shock generation mm-hmm. of working class and middle class people who had been through fucking hell and were like ready to overthrow throw the yeah, state the violently. The yeah, That's, the RDT But nowadays, too, none of these people have fought a fight. Or they weren't yeah. in Afghanistan and they weren't in Iraq. And neither I get Afghanistan or Iraq or up to this point Ukraine is even close to the level of like violence and destruction of World War One or World War Two. So it's like again, it's this attempt at these overtures, these like I, cultural nods yeah. towards a fascism that doesn't have like the material substrate or like even the ideological. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, backing for <laughs> it. World War
3: One was nothing compared to the violence of the dating apps. You know, <laughs>
0: <Right>? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's what these motherfuckers are like, man. It's all such like low-level, paltry, like low-hanging fruit bullshit.
1: No, it's like, it's interesting though because we saw like a lot of people in Dime Square like recently like upset that people were, you know, protesting around, uh, you know, somebody getting killed on the subway Um, and everyone was calling them hysterical and narcissistic and, you know, these are the Dime Square people like they think that the political struggle is actually normalizing the violence against, you know, a certain racial and economic class. Mm. Um, And I think that's where Mike's right. You know, I I don't agree with everything that Mike's saying, but I do think that when we see those... Like, you're talking about, like, real violence, you know? Mm. I always... Like, when Mike came over for our podcast, I was talking about Heaven's Gate, because I always feel like that's a good movie for people to understand, kind of, like, the the chaos and uncertainty of, like, rebellions that are not based on, like, a certain politics, but just the politics of survival. Um, And um, when we...
3: (coughs) Wait, Heaven's Gate, like the Western, right? The Western, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. 1980, yeah. Yeah. Not the cult, sorry. Yeah, Yeah. thanks for (laughs) clarifying that because a lot of people don't know. Yeah. Um, But I do think that, like, when we see people getting killed in the subway and people getting upset and being like, well, this wouldn't have happened if this was, like, you know, a middle class white woman, you know, um, everyone would have freaked out. You know, it would have been a completely different situation to some, you know, PTSD Marine who still takes some crazy class, you know, every weekend to, like, kill people um, wasn't, like, normalized, you know. And I do think you're right about that, Mike. I do think that they normalized that type of violence as opposed to, you know, thinking about, like, the type of violence that might have, you know, made the Italian futurists or the fascists or whatever, like, in your opinion, like, um, you know, reacting to something real.
0: Yeah. Like what's what what is the mass violence that exists in American society over the last fifteen years? It's not like going with your squadristi and going down to the local like fiat factory in Turin and like beating up the communists, getting into a running street battle with them. In the United States, like the mass violence is like individual psychotic spree killers going up and shooting a bunch of skill school children and then posting a manifesto about it or These going with the nazis
2: are, to
3: protest a drag queen story hour yeah. or a, a i mean it kind of clinic. it kind of all comes back down to like like kkk like vigilantly you know like like uh that sort of violence like that's like the paradigm like that is like the all-american totally. like yeah. racist like fascist violence and i feel like um, you see like threads of those in like all of the like ugliest uh like dime square shit. Like whenever like they, they like whenever they show their true ugliness, it's like always like this sort of like KKK echoes. It's like cuz that is like the all-American thing in dime square. It's all American, like oh, you know. Right. So they're <laughs> like, doing <Al> Americanism.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a, what kind of references to the KKK like vigilantism? Well, and- like
3: the Jordan Neely thing. I mean, uh-huh. that was like and th- there's just I mean, that was kind of like there was uh that that killing on the subway and then there's just like a bunch of like, you know, various like personality people of, on Twitter. That, that's kind of like it just, uh, it's a little bit like smaller. I think like the real, there was a real, uh, like reactionary, um, thing that's like m- maybe more cohesive after the, like the George Floyd thing, because, uh, like essentially like the, like typical, like dime square, like, like, uh, party goer was like really fucking uh, like thrown off by the pandemic and, you know, like totally disrupts the like uh like New York socialite lifestyle. And then they're like, Oh, well now all these like leftists are, like, are able to like go out and have their fun with these like protests. <laughs> cool. And like, that's sort of like the way that they see it. And I came to New York in 2021 and it was kind of like after And I feel like my, like, writing about Dime Square is, like, kind of, like, piecing together, like, what it actually was, like, kind of after the fact. Mm. uh, When it was, like, actually kind of, like, this, like, insider, uh, basically, like, this, like, elaborate inside joke of, like, these people who are just, like, very connected to, like, New York media Mm. world. Which basically means that there are a lot of people who just, like, have a lot of attention on them for being famous. And also, like, internationally, like, there's just, like, people elsewhere that are, like, oh, like we're interested in what's like happening with these like New York people just in other countries. So, and I think
2: a big part of that scene that was so attractive to people wasn't anything particularly political. Just like, I don't think any of those people like would be in favor of a squad that just goes around murdering every homeless person, but they did have, they did create a space where like you could go to a certain bar that was maybe like secretly open later than it should have been or open at all during the pandemic. And you could say the word retarded there. Yeah. And yeah. you were allowed to do it. Yeah. And f- for a lot of people, this was like very... This I is mean, like, that's this way peak, more
1: common now. That's
2: the peak of liberation for
0: These some people. Are people who the do's and don'ts section that <laughs> yes. Gavin McGinnis wrote yeah. in Vice magazine up until like 2011 was like the high point of humor and culture. And they feel like that the backlash to that, which arise, like, certainly by the time Me Too comes around, that's like, what, 2014, 2015? Me Too is like 2017 or 2017. So. Certainly there's like a backlash to, like, saying the R word or whatever through like, uh, the teens, let's call it, right? These people feel like something has been taken from them, some sort of identity category, some sort of part of themselves, like the way they understand the world by these words being taken away from them. That's and because we all to- grew
1: up on Garden State.
0: <laughs> i just I, it and just Natalie seems like Portman, such a who's
1: like the you know the liberal harvard educated ngo queen said it in that film so we should all be able to say it basically fair enough
0: well you know there's something to be said for the backlash because like you know this like liberal ngo social justice world like does have a lot of fucking juice like maybe the counterpart to these like lord fucking dime square people isn't even like us sitting here. Maybe the counterpoint is like all of those NGOs that all came out with like the black square on Instagram (laughs) the, the day after the first protest popped off. Maybe it's more like they're more interacting with like the, um, like progressive social justice left yeah, and definitely, maybe like yeah. the yeah. Marxist left. So maybe we're not, hopefully we're not like the counterpoint well, to mean, them. Hopefully we're doing something isn't, better.
1: Isn't the dirtbag left a reaction to like the kind of PC, um, NGO liberal politics that w- yeah. were challenging Bernie Sanders? And basically like, I think Dime Square people just took it slightly further. And so there's, you know, there's turmoil between the two groups, but basically like you have certain people that, like, like you know, you have like Chapo, obviously, and then on the other side you have people like Vouch and Destiny, who like Vouch will like say the n word to like argue with alt-right people to get them on his side, you know? And it's like this opening of, of, um, you know, he's trying to attract the people on the alt-right to come over to the left. And a lot of people don't agree with him because he does all these hypotheticals. And I'm not saying that he's like the best person in the world. I'm just saying that that's the space that opened. Um, and we can't go back, you know? And so all of these political variations are just multiplying and I don't see them stopping or slowing down. I see them just accelerating.
0: But, but neither of them, like, and I, I say us too in this category, although maybe more so than like the, the dime square people, there isn't like a mass movement or something of like, or some institutional network of groups with like a coherent political project on the left right now or on the right. Like, I feel exactly. like, like on both sides, it's a politics of failure. You know? Well,
1: it's also horseshoe politics, too. Like, a lot of, like, the incoherency brings a lot of overlap where it becomes really confusing if Mike Crumps is more right-wing than Dasha, you know, because I'm just not sure sometimes. <laughs> oh, shit. Shit, well, I think that... Uh, no, no, I, Mike it. knows I'm kidding. Mike <laughs> knows I'm kidding.
2: I think there is a coherent pull developing on the right, for sure. And it's, like, this Christian nationalist thing. You, you can kind of see it in the way Tucker Carlson's rhetoric has shifted. Yeah. Especially, you know, since the Trump, he was not nearly like this before the Trump era. He's hired a lot of just hired a lot of Nazis to write for him, and the they're they're opening up a vision of like this kind of combination of traditional American far right thought, um, like a big tent of like the the, the far right demagogic influences combined with like Teal's Hans hermann Hope mm. stuff of like you can have a little city state. Where the city states fascist, but and you can have your own have KKK like,
0: with your friends.
2: It's like kind of a far right autonomism, where like it's mm. a fascist world where many kind of fascists fit,
0: mm. and I, right.
2: I think that you know they're gaining political power way more than anything on the communists, anyone on the communist left is. So I think they've got something like an organic system that's emergent actually, mm. um, and I think that softening up using slurs is you know for most people innocuous. It doesn't really matter to me how people talk, maybe I find it distasteful, but it doesn't really change. If I if I meet someone who says words I don't like, that's not going to try to let it go and still talk to them. But I think when it's done in this sort of joissance way, like am I using that term right? I, I sure, it or, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's
3: sort of like this like pleasure, it's like this enjoyment that's beyond the pleasure principle. It's sort of like like a pain, a pain, but like uh, compulsive. I think that when that's When that's consciously moving to the right.
1: I think the compulsion element that Mike's pointing to is the problem as well, yeah, for sure. Because it's like the same thing. It's like doing it for clout. Jouissance is like a
2: problem, yeah. Well, what I'm I'm trying to say is like when people give into that, knowing that they're moving towards the right culturally or rhetorically, it's because what they really want to say is like, I'm glad Jordan Neely is dead. Like, I would rather him be dead than him annoy me on the subway, Mm. which doesn't make you a, a fascist. Like, I think a lot of normal New York liberals truly feel that way too like good democrat voters on the upper west side who protest uh they say oh i'm a liberal i vote for obama but i don't want this homeless shelter here Mm -hmm. or i don't want these refugees living here that's just that's like common new york liberalism
1: yeah i mean when you listen to the the peter Thiel and graber debate it's interesting because when you they're both asked what they think about the future right and when you think about, like, who Peter Thiel's talking about, you know, he prioritized this idea of getting to Mars, getting some kind of, you know, uh, injection so that you live forever, all of that, and also the people that typically are in these spaces, these rich technocrat people, right, and Graeber is saying, you know, that... (laughs) What he wants is not, he doesn't just want these things to exist. He's not against those things. He says, go and do that if you want. But also, I want these people that have been completely acculturated to nothingness and apathy and nihilism because they've been kicked out of this world. You know, they've been alienated out of, like, in the future, it'll be even worse with automation and all these things, right? He says we need to create a world that allows for all of these people to be, you know, to adding to add their own form of innovation, creativity and all these things, you know, in the same way that in the UK they had doll so that people could like, you know uh, you know, they could go and, you know, make songs with their friends or they could figure out math equations and, or, he, you know, was, basic income is. Yeah, well. Yeah, he's talking
2: about UBI in this. And he said both, that, yeah. That's kind of what disappointed me a little bit about this debate. I, I didn't watch, though. I think I saw probably just about over half of it, is that him and Teal seem to be largely agreeing that, like, the institutions are at work, and we have to shake things bu- up from the outside. They're against bureaucracies
1: to a certain extent, yeah.
2: But, <laughs> and I mean, maybe, like, Graber didn't really... Maybe Teal wasn't so red-pilled at this point or wasn't so oh, obvious Oh, no, he's about been it. red-pilled. No, this he's was been,
0: three years ago, right? This twenty fourteen.
2: Yeah, so that's a while ago. I mean, I think maybe they, maybe if Graber had done it now, it would have been a little bit more obvious that he has to be on the side of like the utopian left as opposed to the dystopian right. But in that debate,
0: where they, I have this in my notes from watching it, where they both agree is that one in like an anarchist fashion should act as though you're free already. Right. It's just that Peter
1: Teal says that, yeah. Peter
0: Thiel agrees with that. It's just that he's saying that from the perspective of a, that, of a capitalist. So the different, and then Graeber, the subtext, of course, is that he's for the popular classes. So let's say the working class or whatever. He believes in that for the workers. What Thiel's vision and. Um, and Graeber's vision are, is, is really the same. It's like a voluntaristic attempt to like push forward your personal vision into the world and try to like come up against all these dark and powerful forces and come out the other side. They agree on that. It's just whether yeah. they stand with the working class or with the capitalist class. I guess the question is, like, is either of those a sufficient conception of what it takes to like fundamentally change society?
1: Yeah, Peter Thiel says, in order to get cities on Mars, we have to plan going there. This is what Elon Musk is doing. He believes this is this is the anarchist thing to act like you're already free to do this, to pursue this. But currently people are basically resisting him, not allowing him to innovate, basically, is his idea. But I mean,
2: like, yeah, look, 10 years later, um, I don't think any... All right, so 10 years ago, I don't think people were really calling Elon Musk a fascist so much. And even Peter Thiel maybe was a little bit... You could say, like, these are more traditional intellectuals in the sense that not that they're intellectuals, but that they um, are sort of agents Mm -hmm. not for uh, the dominant order or an emerging order, but they're just kind of rich technocrats who have their ideas. But 10 years later, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk are clearly both fascists. Seasteading and Mars colonization are clearly fascist projects. Um, Everything that they're doing is trying to create this neo-aristocratic world. Uh, and, I, you know, in Gramsci, he says that these traditional intellectuals can really help pull people from one side to the other. So I think in a sense, this is what Graeber is always trying to do, um, try to create this popular, you know, because Graeber understood, like, the kind of ultra-left communism that Sean and I like. He com- sort of comes from that Federici, zero-work world. And I think he was trying to popularize that, and Dawn of Everything was really a huge achievement in that because i i've i saw I really that even like out. uh kind of like right-wing groups were reading and grappling mm-hmm. with some of the things that he was saying and i think probably that's in a, in a positive way i'm saying that
1: yeah of course yeah.
2: um because he was he was trying to write something like uh not Ma- malcolm gladwell there's like more there's more like anthropologists who is that they were directly taking aim at mm-hmm. uh, uh, yuval
1: hareri uh, right
2: Harari and and so i think you know maybe if he had survived he would have been on joe rogan problem. i don't know So I think it was a good intervention in that regard.
1: Yeah, no, totally. But
2: at the same time, I worry that maybe Graber um, did not, although Occupy was also a huge achievement for the moment, uh, was not so much part of our vision of what, the yeah. emergent social order is it's like the working class taking power
0: and where i it completely lost me and where i was practically yelling at my fucking <laughs> computer screen i want to hear this yeah well no like I, I won't go into a whole fucking thing about it but like their their question that they're in this debate to answer is like why why didn't the future come we're all supposed to have flying oh, cars they, they, both whereas, ag-
1: they both agreed with that because graber said that He basically was trying to agree at first. He said it was,
0: Graeber says it was bureaucracy stifling innovation. Yep. And um, Peter Thiel basically said the same thing, is that like the universities aren't equipped to do research and development. And like that is downstream from an answer for sure. (laughs) But like something happens, like there's this forward progress on technology that starts in the productive apparatus, then it works its way out to through consumer goods. Like, we have to ask ourselves why in the 1970s that particular process stopped. Like, what is it? What was it about? Not just research and development at that point, but that research and development went in a very particular direction, which was towards computers, towards different forms of media, towards spectacles, towards pulling us towards our screens day in and day out, Mm -hmm. as opposed to generalizing liberatory technologies. Like I don't know, mass transit or whatever, right. high not speed rail, cars. not yeah. not <laughs> flying cars, but maybe like flying like collective gondola. The <laughs> point, you know, like the yeah. point is, is like the seventies, you know, against the, the ICC who call the uh, decadence of capital capitalism in uh, the nineteen teens. Like the nineteen seventies is when capitalism as a mode of production reaches its real barrier. When it's unable to do yeah, like the fundamental stagnating. accumulation and like revolutionizing of everyday life to make life better and better for people. Instead it, we've gone this other direction. So there's a whole like constellation of more important factors, I think, than the more surface or like downstream ones that Teal and Graeber talk about. But it's interesting that both of them, as we said, were like You know, technocrats turned intellectuals. One of them's on the left in academia. The other one's on the right, like, running fucking Palantir for the CIA and putting huge financial funds together (laughs) to fund, like, Red Scare podcasts or whatever. But both of them have this very particular conception of how social change happens, and it happens in the realm of ideas, or it happens in institutions, as opposed to, I think, what is the correct way to understand it, which is that, like it's fundamentally the mode of production and it's class relations. And Mm -hmm. the only way to actually confront that and overcome it, of course, is not going into the realm of ideas, but instead coming down to earth and talking about class and talking about working class and revolution.
1: To kind of like, I mean, I'm not going to like defend Graeber completely, but I think that when he was first starting out, I think both him and Teal like had researched each other, and like their first couple of statements seem like they were like the kind of programmed thoughts that they had. You know, he had basically, you know, Teal has this famous thought that basically, you know, in the future we wanted to have flying cars, but instead we got 140 characters. Mm-hmm. So you can see that Graber's first thought is basically based off of that, but he does a slight turn on it, and I think he's doing that to create like solidarity. So it's not like this, like, you know, punching match. Because I also don't think that... He did what
0: Zizek did to Jordan Peterson. (laughs) Zizek tried to, like, pull him in and, like friend hug him in order to stab him was in the that
1: back. The, was that the technique he was using?
0: Yeah, he was like, oh, we agree on so many things, and then P- Jordan Peterson blew up the whole thing because he didn't do the readings. But it would have gone <laughs> I like remember the that. same way in that debate. Uh, well,
3: the word on the street is that like Zizek gets like a ton of money for like the compact mag mm. uh, things that he writes. Like Apparently it's a lot. the <laughs>
0: So yeah, he's a sure. more Slovenian uh, academic man, he's got to make his money somehow. But I else. don't
2: think you can call him a sellout because he's kind of always been writing this stuff. It's been Perhaps, like yeah. always a mixture I mean, of like, yeah, you know, maybe like since the, the, maybe the early nineties. Wait, kind so of.
1: I shouldn't take my paycheck from Compaq then? Uh, uh, I mean, up to you, man. <laughs> Sean up and up I have you. argued about this. <laughs> a bit. Up to you. My uh, opinion is no.
2: Uh, So if you want to experience more The organic intellectual movement You can go to Babies All Right And see Steve Donzinger And Chris Smalls And Neoliberal Hell Do you want to give that a fuller plug, Matthew?
1: Um, Devin can as well uh, Because she's um, the chief organizer Chief organizer uh, of the event Um, But she can't hear You can hear me, right? Yeah, I can hear you Okay, so you don't have to have headphones to hear me (laughs) <laughs>
4: yeah, I can just hear you with my ears. Oh, okay, cool. Sure, yeah. Um, this New York stop is actually part of a tour, a national tour that I'm producing for Chris Smalls and Steven Donziger. Hell yeah. Yeah, uh, so as you guys were saying, um, they're going to be here at Babies Wednesday in conversation about their independent battles against corporate power, joined by Matthew Mcing. We have Neoliberal Hill doing her first live set.
1: With... Being produced by Young Chomsky from the On Pod.
4: Yeah, and some really sick hosts. We have Josh Cinderella, perfect, <laughs> Dagson, the Forever Mad Girls, Perfectly Imperfect,
1: Katie Helper, Katie Helper, the New Guard, Full and Fat. Um, and then Andy will be there too, right? Andy, I'll be there. You're uh, basically so hosting as well. That oh, yeah. is
2: this. This is this is Wednesday. Wait, it's is, today the yeah. when you're hearing this
1: wait is paperboy prince gonna be there too
4: he's not gonna make it for this one he might be joining us on one of our later dates oh Stay what a tuned. Shame. but we also i forgot to mention we have some djs we have take we take manhattan and the iron pack are gonna be djing the after party
2: there it is they're all there folks so yep that is today if you're listening to it wednesday what's the date on wednesday the 19th. Wednesday, the 19th. See you there. Baby's all right. Tonight in Williamsburg.
1: Also, the CIA will be hiring new informants if you want to join our movement.
2: <laughs> and for part two of the episode, more about our involvement with the CIA, go guys. to patreon.com slash the Antifada and subscribe at any level, especially the yearly level. would be really nice. Thank you.